Amen? I don't know about you, but I love being reminded how our Heavenly Father pursues us. How about you guys? You, you love that? I don't know about you, but I'm not worth it, but he pursues me anyway, and I'm so thankful for that. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn today to Matthew chapter 5. We have a lot of territory that I want us to cover today, and uh, Matthew 5 is where we're going to be. And so as you look at Matthew 5, one of the first things you're going to notice as you look at the end of the chapter is that's a lot of conversations, a lot of things there. And I want to say something to you. I could spend about two or three months in the last half of Matthew chapter 5 because there's so many amazing things that Jesus talks about that we could actually take and unpack and look at other passages and pull it in. But today I want us to look at that bulk of text because I want us to catch it in the glimpse of how the first century hearers would have caught it. I want us to look at what Jesus did say. And Jesus obviously was not exhaustive in all his comments on all these topics, but he does say some things that are very, very powerful that I want us to kind of glean from that. So as you turn there, now remember, I want to remind you something I said last week. As, we, as we, you turn there, that as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, here's the one thing I don't want you to forget. Jesus continually calls us to elevate our level of commitment to him, always. As you go through the Sermon on the Mount, that's the one thing we're going to see over and over again. However, when he calls us to elevate our level of commitment, one of two things happen to most of us. One is we get offended because we're like, I don't know that I like that. Listen, there's a lot of things in scriptures I sure don't like. But it's from the creator of the universe, so I'm going to go with it. How about you, right? The second thing we choose to do sometimes is not only get offended, we seem to want to push back a little bit. We want to give the reasons why we can't. Kind of like Moses, when Moses told God why he couldn't go lead Israel out of Egypt. We give all these great excuses. And so as we go into the text today, there's some passages in here that you're going to want to push back against. You're going to want to be offended with. And I just said, when those moments happen for you, instead of being offended, instead of pushing back, just simply say, Lord, maybe there's something here you want me to see. Maybe there's something you want to teach me Maybe that's why there's an uprising in my spirit. So Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. And as we look at Matthew 5, Jesus is going to set the story straight about two primary things he's trying to set the story straight about. Number one is he's trying to set it straight about his own intentions, about his intentions, that why he came. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And the second thing he wants to set straight is our standard of living as salt and light. If you remember last week, we ended with the, the chapter of 5, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus says all these great things about a profile of what it means to follow him, and then he ends with this, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Meaning we're the ones that are going to share the gospel. We're the ones that Jesus has handed the baton to for us to go make a difference in the world we live in. And so now he's coming back and he's okay, here's a standard of living that I want you to live by as my salt and light. So let's look at those two things. First, we're going to look at as Jesus setting the story straight as it relates to his intentions. Look with me in verse 17 through 19. It says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's what Jesus is saying. He says, first of all, I've not come to abolish the law. Now, today in our culture, we don't think a lot about that. We don't think that that's offensive. But for those who are the early people of Jesus, I mean, remember, he has just kind of come off the mountain of a temptation. He's got on the hillside. He's got all these people following. He just called his first followers. So this is his first live message to anybody. 
And so he talks about a profile of what it means to follow him. He says, you're the salt, you're the light. And then he says, let there be no mistake about it. Here's my intention. Here's the heart of why I've come. And here it is. It's not to abolish the law. Now, you would have thought if the Pharisees, who typically like to follow Jesus around and make fun of Jesus and call Jesus out and try to get Jesus pegged into corner, if there was ever a moment they should have been present, it would have been this one. Because they would have cleared up a lot of confusion on their part. Because they thought Jesus had come to kind of usurp this law, to kind of throw the law aside and say the law wasn't important. And Jesus says, I've come not to abolish it. I've not come to say that this law is not important. I've not come to say that this law is no longer to be looked at and understood. I'm not throwing it to the curb. Jesus says, I've not come to do that. Now, when you think about the law, really there's a couple of things. Now, he says the law or the prophets. Most scholars would say that what he's referring to is not just the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments. He's referring to the entire Jewish scriptures, the entire laws we see in the Old Testament that they would have had. Now, if you look at law, just real quickly, I don't have a lot of time here. There are three kinds of categories you can put the Old Testament law into. One is the moral law which is like Ten Commandments. Now, if you were to divide the Ten Commandments, you would realize that most of those commandments deal with what it means to love God, right? Have no other God before me. Don't take the Lord your God's name in vain. So, so about over half of them deal with loving God, and the other half deal with, guess what? Guess what? Loving who? People. Loving God and loving people. And so Jesus kind of, you know, that's the kind of the moral law. And then you have the judicial law, the law that's in there about, okay, if someone steals, cut their hand off. I mean, the kind of law that deals with how we're going to deal with the payment of someone's sin. What retribution should there be if they commit this sin, X, Y, and Z? And then there's ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law was what are we going to do when we go to the temple to worship? What is the requirements to sacrifice before a holy God? So Jesus says, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to Fulfill it, right? Jesus says, I'm not coming to write this thing off. I've come to be the perfect fulfillment of the law. Now, that's exactly what Jesus did. Cameron, I'm echoing. I don't know what it is. I'm sorry. I'm annoying myself. So uh, he comes. That's not easy, hard for me to do, by the way. And so anyway, he comes to fulfill the law. Now, here's the thing about fulfilling the law. At the death and resurrection of Jesus, he fulfilled two of the three laws. He fulfilled, first of all, the ceremonial law because Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb of God who was sacrificed. Amen? He fulfilled that. There's no reason to ever do another sacrifice. He was that sacrifice. He was our propitiation. He took our place. He also satisfied the judicial law. Because God is a just God, God demands justice. Does that make sense? God is just, therefore he demands justice. In Romans chapter 3, you can read it later, Paul says that while God is just, he's also the justifier. Meaning, while God demands payment for sin, he also provided the payment for sin. Did you hear that? While he demands payment for sin, he provided that payment, satisfying the judicial law. And then we have the moral law. And if there's anything you could say about Jesus, Jesus was the epitome of what it meant to love God and to love people. Amen? He came to fulfill it. So he says, I've come not to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it, which is exactly what he did. And then if you notice there at the end of the passage, he encourages his followers to obey it. He said, this law, not one iota should pass away. And for those who don't live it and those who don't teach it will be least in the kingdom. But those who teach it and those who live it are going to be great. Now, let me explain that for a minute. One day, those of us that are followers of Jesus, when we stand before God, we are not going to be judged or given account for how we kept or did not keep the law. 
We are not under the law in that regard. However, the law is a reflection. The moral law is a reflection of the heartbeat and the precepts and the principles of God. When he says, you shall have no other God before me, that is God expressing his heart to mankind that I want number one in your life. Now, did that change? No. And so when I stand before God, I'm not going to stand to give account that I was a law keeper or law breaker because we've all broken the law. What I'm going to give account for is what did I do with Jesus? Did I accept him into my life as my Lord and Savior? Now, as a follower of Jesus, I look at the Ten Commandments and go, you know what? If I can live a life yearning to keep these Ten Commandments, it's going to put me on a path of holiness. That's what holiness looks like. To be set apart, to be different. If I can put no other God before him, if I cannot take the Lord's God name in vain, if I cannot covet, not steal, not murder, I mean, it's going to set me aside, which is exactly what the law always intended to do, to set the Israel aside. And he said, if you will live it and you will teach it, you will be great. Not because you're awesome, you'll be great because you're putting yourself on a path to be more like Jesus. So he said, I want to set the record straight. I've not come to abolish this thing. I've come to perfectly fulfill it, and I want you to live it out. Not because you're under it anymore, but because it still reflects the heartbeat of God, and it leads you down a path of holiness. And here's the, you know, and I think he's given us a standard here, that when we read this book, and you hear me say it all the time, this is not just a good book. This is the standard for with which we should live our lives. This is the heartbeat of God. This is the principles and precepts of God. And if we want to know what, what God hurts over and what God longs for, it is in this book. 66 books, it's all in here. And that's what he's trying to say. Let me set this record straight. So then he sets the record straight and, and sets the story straight about his intentions. But where I really want to land today is he sets the story straight on our standard of living as salt and light. Now this is where it's going to get rough for us, all right? This, we're about to enter some deep waters here. Look at verse 20. He says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's, I mean, maybe there's good the Pharisees weren't there because this would have been very offensive to them, right? He says, unless your righteousness, in other words, unless your style of living is better than that of the Pharisees and the scribes, and you don't have any shot. Now, how did the Pharisees and scribes live? Well, everything was about external. Right? So they want to stand up and they want to present themselves as being holy. They want to present themselves before God as being righteous. But at the end of the day, their hearts were wicked. In fact, the only compliment Jesus ever gave the Pharisees were that they were tithers. That's it. It's the only compliment he gave them. On many other topics, he calls them out. He calls them out on their lack of showing compassion. He calls them out on their lack of showing mercy and grace. I mean, so these guys, their, their righteousness was all external. It was hypocritical and it was selfish. Now watch Jesus' point. The way that believers are to live our lives is with a sense that something inside of me has changed me. With a sense of authenticity, not trying to be fake, and with a sense of selflessness, not selfishness. And so Jesus covers six topics in the rest of this chapter. And I believe as he covers these topics, he's, he's approaching them with a sense of humility and authenticity and selflessness that we are to have. And with each topic we go through, I think there's a standard we need to walk away with. Here's the first one he covers. It's murder. And he says this in verse 21. You have heard it. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now just pause there for a minute. He's quoting the Old Testament law. Is murder a sin? Yes or no? Not a trick question. Is murder a sin? 
Yes. And she's like, well, I thought about it. No, 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 no. Come on. Come on. We'll get to that in a minute. Is murder a sin? Yes, or Yes, it is a sin. We know that. That's the law. But listen, Jesus ups the game, right? Jesus is like, because we all know murder is a sin, but some of us have this crazy notion that I can be as abusive as I want to be verbally, maybe in physical, and if I don't yet take the life of another, I'm still within the framework of being okay before God. And Jesus elevates it, and he says this. Look with me in the next verse, verse 22. He says this, but I say to you, not, not that the law was wrong, but I'm, a, I'm, I'm raising the bar, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Here's <laughs> what Jesus says. Listen, yeah, we know murder's wrong. But at the end of the day, he gives us three ways that we can murder people without technically taking their lives. Here's the first one. He says angry, right? Being angry. Now, you, now if you're like me, here's my first thought. Well, wasn't Jesus angry? When he's in the temple flipping over tables? And the answer is, yes, he was. So now you have to do a little word search on the word angry. The word anger here, he's not referring to a moment of righteous anger, which is exactly what Jesus displayed when he was flipping over tables in the area where the money changes were. He's talking about an anger that is a deep resentment of the heart that leads to rage. It's exactly what this word here means. It's a deep resentment of the heart that leads to to rage. So that's not a moment of righteous anger. That is a, 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 just a, a simmering of anger that turns to bitterness and turns to hatred and turns to rage. And Jesus says, those of us that have that kind of anger in our heart, we're going to be accountable to because that's as much sin as murder is. And then he says, for those that insult others, which means the word translate should be there, should be slander. He's talking about slander there. Now, you know what slander is? It's saying something falsely about someone else with the intent to hurt them. Did you know slander in the eyes of God is as much sin as physically taking the life of someone else? When you say something falsely about someone else with the intent to hurt them and bring them down. And then he gives us a third one here. He says this. He says the, the idea of um, condemning someone's character. He says those of you that call someone you fool. Now, when you call someone a fool, I know you're not Mr. T, but I mean, when you call someone a fool, what are you referring to? Are you uplifting them or are you degrading them? Are you trying to build them up or are you condescending in that statement? You're degrading them, right? You're, you're totally tearing them down. Now listen to me. Tearing someone down and condemning the character of someone else is as sinful as physically taking the life of somebody else. Now here's what Jesus says, because he knows we all look at this and go, really? I mean, if someone took a gun and popped somebody and took them out, you're telling me that the sin of resentment that leads to rage, and you're telling me that all this other stuff is on par with that? exactly what Jesus is telling you. So look what he says next here in verse 23 through 26. This is the part that we're not going to like. Here it is. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to, with him to court. Lest your accusers hand you over to judge and the judge to the guard and the guard will put you in prison. Truly I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now here's what Jesus is trying to drill down on. It's this, is that if we have something like this in us, if we have a resentment that's building in us, if we have that resentment that's leading to rage, if we've slandered somebody or if we've condemned somebody's spirit, listen to me, before we come to worship and put the smile on our face and lift our 
hands toward God and sing the songs and put our offering in the basket, before we do that, go make it right. Go make it right before we come to worship God. And then he goes on to say, go make it right before it gets out of control. Because if you let it get out of control, they're going to talk to the judge. He's going to go talk to the court. He's going to go talk to the prison. And you're going to end up in jail. And you're going to be up a creek without a paddle. So Jesus, listen, here's what I want you to do. When you have offended someone else, when you have offended someone else, go make it right. Now, here's what all our pushback is going to be. But they have a part in this. That doesn't matter. But Doug, you don't know. I don't care. The point of what Jesus is saying is, when we've offended somebody else, and here's the standard he's setting, when we offend others, go make it right. Before you offer a gift to the Lord and before it gets out of control. Now, all of us in the room, because all, you're all beautiful and perfect and you've never had a problem with this, but all of us can think of people who've had offense against somebody else and they didn't make it right, and we saw how that was destructive to that relationship, right? You've seen that before? Have you seen it? I've seen it in my family. Not, not my immediate family, but my, 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 my aunts and my uncles. There was a moment, probably when I was about 10 or 11 years old, where there was, a, there was a breakout in our family over something very silly, and nobody wanted to talk to anybody else, and nobody went and reconciled, and nobody apologized, and nobody tried to make it right. And for the next 20 years, two decades, our families never sat in the same room again. So all those memories I had as a kid about Christmas Eve, it's only when I was a kid. Because between 10 and 30, we never sit in the same room again as a whole family, my extended family. Why? Because we never learned this. Jesus is saying when we offend others, and here's the beautiful thing. Can I promise you something? You will offend somebody else. You will offend. And if you slandered somebody, if you've condemned them, or you just had this resentment that's built up in you, go make it right. Before you offer anything to the Lord, go make it right. Before it gets out of control. Go make it right. So here's the standard. When we offend others, go make it right. Here's the second thing he talks about is adultery. Now, I want to, I want to define adultery. Adultery is physical intercourse for a married person with someone who's not their spouse. Is that clear? We all on the same page with that? Look what he says in verse 27. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. In other words, we know that's the law. We know that's Ten Commandments. We shouldn't do that. But Jesus raises the bar, and he says this. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, he says, listen, lustful intent is equivalent to adultery. Now, let me remind you what adultery is. It's a physical act, intercourse, between a married person and someone who's not their spouse. We all, if you all, that, that definition makes sense. Everybody say amen. Okay, Jesus says that's not enough. Let's dig deeper to the condition of your heart. If you have lustful intent in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Meaning, lustful intent is on par with adultery. It is as much sin as adultery is. Now, you might say, well, what's lustful intent? Well, let me tell you what it is. It's intentional gazing with a desire to partake in. That's what lustful intent is. It's an intentional gazing with a desire to partake in. Whether it's someone or something. It's an intentional gazing. Now, look, I, I grew up, and, man, I, my dad was a railroader growing up, and so I got to be around some of those guys. And let me just say, they, 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 they and sailors must have learned the same vocabulary. I mean, some of them had some terrible, and the things they would say, and I, I mean, I heard some crazy things when I was a kid. I heard stuff, and you all have heard this before, like, you know, you can look, but don't what? Touch, right, stupid. That is an absolutely stupid comment. Why? Because what Jesus says is when you look with an intent to gaze and partake in, it's affecting the very fabric of who you are, your, your heart. 
And Jesus says lust, and the, the lustful intent is adultery. That the intent of the heart is as sinful as the physical act. The mindset of look but don't touch, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. That is not biblical. And so here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 29. This is something we aren't going to really like. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, what does it say? What does it say? Tear it, Tear it out. Think about that one. So you lust twice and you're done, right? Right? He says, listen, he said, look, look at what he says here. He says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with him in the heart. If your right eye calls you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, is Jesus advocating gouging our eyes out and cutting our hands off? No. What is Jesus advocating? He's advocating that we take lust seriously. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that every other sin is outside the body, but sexual immorality is a sin that's from within. It affects every area of our life. There's not one area of your life that sexual immorality does not affect. And what Jesus is saying is we need to be extreme in dealing with our lustful intents. Now, here's what I mean. Some of you, we're going to talk about this in a minute. I'm going to talk about boundaries. And some of you are going to say, well, here's my boundary. Here's what I would say to you. Wherever you think your boundary should start at, you need to go way beyond that. Because we're always about getting ourselves and letting ourselves off the hook, aren't we? I mean, when I start with, like, like for example, like, I would love to one day to be motivated to diet. I would love that, but it just not happened. I enjoy food way too much. But I would love that, that, that motivation to, to want to lose weight. And so maybe what I would say is, okay, you know what, is you might ask me, okay, Doug, how much weight do you want to lose? Well, because I like food, I may say something crazy like this. Well, I like to lose four or five pounds. Okay, well, the doctor says you're about 90 pounds over, so four or five is not going to touch it. So I might need to create a boundary. Okay, I'm going to look to more like 50, right? My point is, if I want to do something, if I really want to be cautious and mindful, the measures I take have to be extreme and the whole point Jesus is making is when it comes to lustful intent you need to be extreme in dealing with it quit brushing it on the carpet quit thinking it doesn't matter don't think it doesn't impact you because you're wrong it does and lustful intent is as much sin as adultery is now naturally he goes on to another topic verse 31 here's the standard for that we must guard our hearts and minds sorry the standard for that is we must guard our hearts and minds then he goes on to the issue of divorce look with me in verse 31 through 32, he says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality or adultery, make her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in the Mosaic Law, there was a season during Israel's history that the divorce was one of these things where you woke up one day, you decide you didn't like them anymore, I'm done with you. And they were done with them. And Moses goes, whoa, this is so not what God intended. And so then they created a bill of divorcement, or a certificate of divorce. They said there had to be a reason behind this, and then we gave you a certificate and said, okay, that's your, your divorce because there's a legitimacy to it. By the time Jesus came around, and during this, the first century when Jesus was living, the Pharisees' mindset was, as long as you had a bill of divorcement, it didn't matter the reason. Any reason was good enough. You just had to have a bill of divorcement. And Jesus comes along and goes, you've all missed the boat here. So here's what Jesus says. Unless someone has committed sexual immorality, there are no grounds for divorce. Now, in the culture with which we live, would that just wreck everybody's mindset? Come on, come on, come on. Would that wreck everybody's mindset? You better believe it. 
And look what he says. I'm going to go back to it because we want to spend just a little bit of time here. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a bill of divorcement, a certificate of endorsement. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to correct their thinking, and he's trying to remind them of something. Now, what's Jesus trying to remind them of? That marriage is sacred, right? Do you believe that today? Marriage is sacred. Marriage has been ordained by God. And what God has put together, let no man what? Pull apart or pull asunder, right? He's reminding them the sacredness of the vows that we make. So when he says, unless it's for this reason, it shouldn't even be on the radar, what he's saying is that marriage is so sacred and so holy, it's time that we treat it seriously. It's time that we don't look at marriage as if something that we can just throw away like our garbage. Like, well, today it's not working out, or today she's nagging me a lot, I'm just done with her, or he's not doing what I asked him to do, I'm done. I mean, we need to treat it with the seriousness that Jesus says it deserves. And he's trying to draw that out. And then he gives an exception. Unless it's due to sexual immorality, which that fits into a lot of category. The word porinia, which would be pornography, fits into that. Adultery fits into that. There's a, there's a large category there. We're not going to be exhaustive. We'll come back to this and we'll get to Matthew 19. You'll be really excited about that one. So come back to that one. But the point is this. is Jesus saying that we need to take the vow sacred. When you stand before God and people and say, I do, it should matter. People should enter into marriage. And if they were to exit marriage with a seriousness and a thought process that's not flippant or casual about it, right? And so Jesus says, listen, it's serious. It's a big deal. But there's an exception. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you an exception. What's the exception? Sexual morality. Now, why would Jesus choose sexual morality? Well, I'm going to tell you why he would choose it, because it is the greatest betrayal of any marriage, isn't it? When someone were to walk out on their spouse and be with someone else, is that not the greatest betrayal in a marriage you could ever face? You better believe it is. And while Jesus offers an out, he's not encouraging it, he's not demanding it, because we still know that in the Old Testament, Scripture says that God hates what? Divorce. He hates it. But Jesus gives out. Then, he, then Jesus raises the bar a little bit more before we move on. Look with me back in verse um, 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits Adultery. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. If we divorce for illegitimate reasons, it's as if we've committed adultery. It's an act of unfaithfulness. When couples divorce and it's not illegitimate, meaning there's not grounds, there's not biblical grounds, it falls in the category of unfaithfulness and is sinful. Now, I want everybody to listen to me. Please don't leave this place confused. Statistically, 40 to 50% of the people in this room will have been through divorce. So everything in you might be rising up right now. But here's what I want to say to you. That word adultery is in the singular. It means doesn't mean if you're divorced and you remarry that you're in a perpetual state of sin. It doesn't mean that at all. It means when divorce occurs and it's not legitimate and a remarriage occurs, which isn't legitimate because the divorce wasn't legitimate, it is an act, a singular act of sinfulness. It's unfaithfulness. Now here's what I know about sin, and I'm really good at this one. You ready? I know that all sin is forgivable. Do you know that? Do you believe that? There's only one sin that's not forgivable, and it's the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which means rejecting the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that a little bit later in Matthew's gospel. Every sin is forgivable. Now, here's why I say that. I have known a ton of divorced couples in my life and in my ministry. And can I just tell you this? This might really blow your mind. Some of them have loved Jesus way more than people that have never been divorced that I've ever met. Some of them have served the Lord maybe more than anybody I've ever met in my life. 
But here's what I know about those couples. When there was an illegitimacy to that separation, that divorce that took place, I've had conversations with couples as they remarried going, you know what, we, we, we don't want to break the heart of God and we know we, we divorced for the wrong reasons, but they went down their path and we went down our path. What, what do we do? Are we just condemned? Are we just doomed? And I just say, listen, it's a singular act of unfaithfulness. Yes, it's sinful. It is forgivable sin, but just confess that to God. Say, God, I look at my life. I see what I've done. Man, we were sinful. We were wrong. Would you forgive me of that? And I want this new marriage to be honoring and glorifying to you. Would you bless that? And here's what I believe. God does that. I believe he will bless it. I guarantee you, I've known people who've had that story in their life, and God is using them in a powerful way. Does it take away from anything Jesus said? Absolutely not. But what's the point of Jesus saying here? Is he trying to give a a list of what we can and can't do? No, no, no. What Jesus is trying to do is remind us of the sacredness of marriage, the sanctity of the vows that we make, and that we should never discard them casually and without deep thought. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. Okay, here we go. We're going to keep moving. Here we go. If you have questions, ask Don Jacobs when we're done. Here we go. Uh, Next, he moves on to oaths. He says this in verse 33. He says, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform uh, perform to the Lord what you have sworn. In other words, that's part of the law that you take an oath. Now, in the Old Testament, many people would take an oath and invoke the name of God, which means it was binding. And then the Pharisees came along and thought the only kind of oath that was binding at all is if you invoke the name of God. And by the time that Jesus comes along, people are invoking the name of God all the time as if it's binding. For example, they're, 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 they're making oaths and invoking the name of God to cover up sin. They're making oaths and, and, and using the name of God to, to kind of to skirt some issues. In other words, how many of you have ever done something you shouldn't do? And when someone called you on you said, I promise to God I didn't do it. All of us have done it. It's exactly what was going on in the time of Jesus. And Jesus does something awesome here when he talks about this. He does this. Look at me in verse 34. He says this, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God. For by earth, for it is its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil. Now, here's what he's saying. Just let your words count. Look at your commitments. You know, here's the one thing I contend with all the time. We are committed to everything and loyal to very few things. Would you agree with that? You know what the problem is? Is our yes is not yes and our no is not no. That's a problem. When someone says something to you, you shouldn't have to follow it up with, I promise shouldn't have to follow it up. You shouldn't have to follow it up with swearing, you know, saying, hey, you know, I swear on my mother's whatever. Or I swear in the name of God. I mean, we shouldn't have to invoke any of that stuff. When we answer, let our word be our bond. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. Let me tell you how this is very practical to you. In about 20 minutes, you're going to leave here. And you're going to ask your spouse, do you want to go eat a Zaxby's? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Right? Now, I'm making fun of that, but here's the point. Here's the standard Jesus is setting for us. Keep your word because it's your bond. You know, marriage's standard is simply, you know, marriage need to fight for faithfulness. We need to fight for it. So even in a marriage context, do we need to be people that keep our words in our marriages? So when your spouse looks at you and go, are you okay? And you respond, I'm okay. Or here's the thing I hate the most, I'm fine. And you find out later, they're not fine. 
And days have gone on, hours have gone on. You've operated as though you were, they were fine, but they weren't fine. And now the bomb blows up, right? So do you think this is relevant to every area of our life, that we need to be people that keep our word? You better believe it. Keep your word, it is your bond. Then he moves on, two more real quickly. He moves on to retaliation. He says this in verse 38. You have heard it said, any, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now this is interesting because this is, he's talking about judicial law right now. That if you live in a society and a culture where if this happens, this happens, that's okay. Like if someone's caught in some countries, if they were caught stealing, they would cut off their hand. That, that's part of the culture. That's part of the social law. The problem is when people took that to their own personal lives. So now when we take justice into our own hands, that's the problem. And so Jesus combats that. And look what Jesus says. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Give to the ones who beg you and do not refuse the one who should borrow from you. Now here's the point and what Jesus is trying to communicate to us is that we are not to retaliate. Then when people offend us and people hurt us, we are not to retaliate. So here's what Jesus says. When someone strikes you on the one cheek, what are you supposed to do? Now, this is, do you think what Jesus is saying is, let's say, Ryan, who liked to throw snowballs at me during the Christmas Eve, even knocked my glass off, thanks by the way. If Ryan were to strike me on my right cheek, does that mean that I need to turn my left cheek and let him strike, strike me there? That's not what he's saying. The point of what Jesus is saying is that when someone offends you, someone hurts you, show restraint. Don't retaliate. So the turning of the cheek never was, well, this one's red. Go ahead and give this one, make it even amount. That wasn't the intent of Jesus. The intent was, as a believer, as salt and light, that when someone injures us or hurts us, show restraint. And then he goes on and says, if they try to sue you, give them even the tunic. His point is that we need to show kindness. That someone wants to sue us or do something against us, show extreme kindness. It doesn't matter if it's fair. It doesn't matter if they deserve it. Show them kindness. And then he goes on to say that if they want you to walk one mile, how many are you to walk? Two, meaning go beyond. Go beyond. One of my favorite Proverbs is when it says that being kind to someone is like pouring heaping coals on their head. That means in my kindness, God is going to expose their wickedness. It's not my job to expose it. Right? Show kindness to others. Go beyond. And then he says this at the very end. He says this, he says, give to those who beg from you. In other words, be benevolent. Be benevolent. Here's the point. Jesus says when it comes to retaliation, most of us, when we get struck on one cheek, what do we want to do? Come on, what do we want to do? What do we want to do? Punch them as hard as we can right in the nose, right? Right? Karate chop them. Whatever you got to do, just take them out. When someone sues us, what do we want to do? We want to bow up, get what's ours. When someone is, is begging from us that's offended us, what we want to do, write them off. Jesus says, don't retaliate. Show kindness. Go the extra mile. Be benevolent. Show restraint. And then one more thing he talks about as we close this out. He talks about loving your enemies. He says this in verse 43. You've heard it said that you, are to, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, which is partly the law and partly wrong. I'm partially wrong. It's distorted. The law says that we're to love our neighbors, right? We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Never talks about hating your enemies. 
And so Jesus corrects them in verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, how many of you find that easy? Come on, let's be honest. Anybody find that easy? No. I don't want to pray for my enemies. I want to love my enemies. In fact, I, you know, and I even wrestle with the whole enemies. But then I got to thinking about it. You know, maybe you make enemies. Maybe I've made enemies. About, I don't know, about six years ago, after shortly after planting a church, there was this young couple that came to our church, and they were one of those couples that kind of came, and I thought, man, they were really going to be, you know, the, the kind of people that really want to get involved, and what I found out was he was a thorn in my flesh. Can I just say that? He was a thorn in my flesh. No matter what I said or what I did, he was always calling it to question. I would probably put him in the category of an enemy. Now, if you say pray for my enemies, my prayer would have been more like this. God, if you could take him out or take him away, that would be great. Come on, I'm not trying to be, I'm just telling you to be honest. That's how I would probably pray. But when I come to the words of Jesus, here's what he says, love them. What? Yeah, love them. Not only love them, but pray for them. And don't pray that I'm going to take them out. Pray for the condition of their heart. You know why? Because at one point in my life, the Bible says I was an enemy toward God. Right? In my wickedness and my wretchedness and my sinfulness, before I accepted Christ, I was an enemy of God. Did he give up on me? No. Did he give up on you? No, don't give up on them. And then Jesus says this in verse 45 through 48 as we wrap this up. He says, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain for the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have in heaven? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, listen, it's easy to love the lovable. And most of you in this room are lovable, right? I won't categorize who they are. But most of us in this room, we're lovable. And isn't it easy to love people that love you back? Come on, isn't it easy to love people that love you back? The problem is loving people who are unlovable. And he says, listen, what good is it if you only love the people you love? If you only love the easy people, he said, don't the, don't the sinners, don't the Gentiles, don't the non-believers, don't they do that? Yeah. So what separates believers and salt and light from non-believers? That we love everybody. We don't have to agree with their lifestyle. We don't have to agree with their decisions, but we can still show them the love of Christ. And so he ends with, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, meaning we need to pursue being more like Jesus who loves God and who loves people. How about us? Now, here's the question I want you to think about with me. When you think about what Jesus said this morning, and I know we've covered a lot of ground, and some of you are going to walk out with your minds blown. So let's just kind of drill it down for me. Let's, let's, put the rubber where the, let's put the rubber on the road here. When you look at the words of Jesus, would you agree with me that everything Jesus says flies in the face of what our culture wants to tell us? You agree with that? I mean, what, what Jesus said, the culture's like, nope, not that way. So my question to you is this. Or think about this, Jesus calls us out today. For those of us that have relationships that are messed up, he calls us out to reconcile those broken relationships. It doesn't matter whose fault it is, go make them right. In fact, some of you, as we sing the invitation, you need to slip out and go make a phone call. You need to slip out and go make a text message. You need to do something before we sing the next song because you, he's called us out to reconcile broken relationships. For others of us, we need to sit down and create some serious boundaries when it comes to our lustful thoughts. And we might need to get somebody in our lives that can be an accountability partner that can hold us accountable. We need to be extreme in treating with that. He's called us out as married folks 
to treat marriage seriously and to fight for faithfulness in our marriage and to show the love we have for our spouses. He's called us out to make sure that our word is our bond, that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. And he's called us out not to retaliate, but to show mercy and to show love. And he's called us out most of all to love the unlovable. To love the unlovable. So here's my question. In your notes, which one of those do you wrestle with? If you were to pick one, don't pick. Some of you are like, oh, it's all of them. Okay, don't pick all of them. Pick one. Which one do you look at and go, you know what? I start, and be honest. We're not going to have you show them to us. We're not going to ask you, okay, all those that lust in the room, go ahead and come up to the altar and pray. We're not doing anything like that. But I need you to be honest. I, I need us to be honest today. Which ones do we really wrestle with? And here's the most important question. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to make the phone call? Are we going to create some boundaries? Are we going to have the hard conversations with our spouses and work on our marriage? Are we going to guard our words because they matter? Are we going to show grace? I mean, I want you to take a step today and find out which one do I struggle with and what am I going to do about it? So if you're a believer today, simply say this. Would you take a step? Look at the one you wrestle with. Look at the standard that Jesus called us to and how can you meet that standard? How can you start working toward that standard in your life? If you want to come pray at the altar, it'll be open. If you want to come pray, we're going to have, if some of our deacons and wives will just move to the sides of the room in just a moment, they'll pray with you. Or if you need to sit right there, but I want you to take a step. Make a commitment today to the Lord of an area you need to change something. Now listen, if you make a commitment, let your word matter. Right? Let it matter. And last of all, I'd say this. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, nothing that I said is possible without him. It requires a personal relationship with Jesus to do anything that I've talked about. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask everybody to stand up with me if you would. Everybody stand up. And every head bowed and every eye closed. Everybody stand up if you would. And I just want to pray for us. And I want to pray for believers first of all. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. And I know we've just covered a chunk of scripture something we could chew on, but I really wanted us to see the 30,000-foot view that Jesus gave those people that day as he set the story straight about his intentions. But even as he set the story straight about the standard of living as salt and light, God, I know about these folks in the room, but I know that for me in my life, too often, when life comes at me, when people come at me, when things come at me, I tend to lean on my own strength, my own wisdom, my own feelings. And what I'm reminded today is that I need to lean on you. That Jesus has a standard for how I treat people. Jesus has a standard for how I deal with lust in my heart. Jesus has a standard how serious I am to take my marriage. Jesus has a standard for the words that I speak, the, the feelings in my heart against somebody. Jesus has a standard for what it means to love you and to love others. And God, I pray for believers all across this room that we would just take a step. If there's an area we're struggling that maybe we'd come to the altar and pray, maybe we'd find those that can pray over us this morning, but we would take a step. And they got to pray for those who don't know you. But they realize that none of this is possible without a relationship with you because only through relationship, once our heart is changed, then our behavior will follow. So God, I pray for those people. I pray they would cry out to you right now. They would realize that they are a sinner and they would surrender their life and trust Jesus as the Lord and Savior. I pray they would do that right now. 
God, may you have your way with us as we sing to you, as we adore you, as we worship you. Would you work and penetrate the very fibers of our heart today? Lord, we need you, and we love you. And it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask those that come forward if they need somebody's prayer. If the deacons and wives would just kind of step forward, that would be great on both sides of the room and in the back of the room. It doesn't matter. Listen, would you just think about taking a step today? Whatever the area is, would you take a step? And if you don't know Christ, would you trust him? Maybe you want to come talk about it. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. Maybe you just want to put on that card that was in your worship folder and let us know. But I'm asking you, everybody in this room, all hundred and however many of us are, before you leave, would you take whatever step you feel like the Lord leading you take this morning? And would you be faithful to do it as we sing?